Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking Talent. I'm Nicole Fuqua. You're listening to our audio series where we dig into issues related to talent acquisition. In today's episode, we're talking about unconscious bias and the role it plays in the recruitment process. As employers work to build processes that are inclusive and equitable, talent leaders need to confront the effects of these biases. That means understanding where they come from, what they look like, and where they can pop up. Back on the podcast to talk about this topic is Simon Wright, People Scout's Global Head of Talent Advisory Consulting. Simon, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Nicole. Great to be back. Good to see you. Well, thank you. I am so glad to have you back. And so to kick off, unconscious bias is a term that we've been hearing a lot more often over the past few years. What is driving that and why is it so important to have a conversation about this topic today? Yeah, I mean, I think for most businesses, uh, diversity and inclusion certainly shot up the agenda over the last few years, whether that's, uh, you know, gender inequality through things like the Me Too movement or race equality through uh, the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. It's kind of become a much bigger societal uh, issue that everyone's starting to have more of a conversation around. Uh, and uh, it's kind of got that heightened awareness in in organisations. I think customers uh, and the public are certainly, because of that conversation, looking at what organisations are doing and starting to use more discretion around where they spend their dollars. So organisations can't be silent on these issues and now need to be seen to be taking action. And then there's also pressure coming from uh, investors and shareholders. They're putting much greater attention on this, uh, particularly as we come out of the pandemic. uh, And they're putting businesses under pressure to make commitments uh, specific to equity, diversity and inclusion and encouraging organisations to publicly publish uh, the progress that they're making and the targets that they're setting as well. And like customers, employees and candidates have got a choice of who they work for. And in today's job market, today's labor market, you know, it's really, really challenging out there. So, you know, people are thinking with their feet, whether they stay with an organization to see whether they're committed to diversity or when they're making a decision to join. It's certainly one of those uh, factors uh, being thought through from, from the audience. And the data, though, shows that there's a really long way to go for organisations to be truly representative of the societies that they serve, for salaries to be comparable across gender, race and sexual orientation. So there's definitely more that organisations need to be doing to improve. Uh, But I think the good news is that employers recognise they've got a role to play. Um, and actually, the, there's a business benefit that comes with it in terms of uh, better organizational performance. So I don't think organizations now are fighting diversity and inclusion as a, uh, you know, the right thing to do, but also something that drives business benefit. And unconscious bias just plays you know, such a huge part in holding organizations back from creating that truly diverse uh, and inclusive workplace. Thank you. And so broadly, what is unconscious bias and where does it come from? Yeah, so I guess the, uh, you know, that kind of official definition, unconscious bias or implicit bias is a term that describes the associations we hold outside of our, our conscious awareness. 
But if I kind of try and make it and simplify it a little bit, we, we make really quick judgments and assessments of people and situations without realizing. And these are biases that are part of our evolutionary adaptation designed to help our brains kind of make decisions more quickly. So if you imagine every time we have to make a decision and we have to do it consciously taking into account every single piece of information available to us, it'll take us a really, really long time. So as part of that evolutionary process, it really stems back to thousands of years ago on the savannah as hunter-gatherers, uh, when we were competing to pass on our genes and we were making quick decisions about who was safe and who wasn't, it really was then a matter of life and death. Because every day, subconsciously, we make a multitude of decisions. The most recent one being whether you're going to carry on listening to this podcast. But we process about 11 million bits of information a second. And we can only consciously process about 40 of those. So this kind of quick shortcut is um, really important to being able to get through the day because every day we're making 35,000 decisions. And most of the time we don't even realize that we're kind of making that decision. So it, it, it really is a kind of adaptation of how we've evolved. But the key point being that everyone makes these decisions. And because we uh, use this shortcut, it doesn't make us e evil. It's a hard wiring into our brains. And it's not something that we can eliminate because it's come from that evolution process. If we fast forward and our biases um, can be influenced by backgrounds and the cultural environment, our personal experiences, and the results and from the feelings and attitudes towards others based on their race, ethnicity, age, appearance, accent, a whole plethora of different factors. And experiments have shown that the brain categorizes people by race in less than one tenth of a second. So about 50 milliseconds um, to determine sex. So we're making a judgment instantly um, on people. Uh, and also termed implicit social uh, cognition, it includes favorable and unfavorable assessments which are activated without us understanding it, without us having that kind of awareness. So it's important to distinguish those from known and conscious biases that people often conceal. So there's a kind of positive bit and there's a less positive bit where people know they've got a bias, but they kind of try and hide it from, from sight. And the biases that we have really come from our upbringing. It's uh, where we've grown up. It's a social structure that we've been part of. It's what kind of people and social groups we've been exposed to, what kind of ideas have had an impact on us. And also, uh, which is a huge influence, you know, what we see in the media around us as well. So although uh, biases are designed to support our decision-making, they can also lead to inaccurate assumptions. And sadly, evolution chose efficiency over accuracy. So today, when we think about circumstances that rely on accuracy, recruitment decisions being a kind of critical one, we really do have to interrogate our biases. So what are some specific ways that unconscious bias can impact our decision making, especially as it applies to the recruitment process? Yeah, so if I kind of take you back in time a little bit, um, so not as far back as a thousand years, but if I take you back to 1952 and it'll kind of provide a bit of context around uh, unconscious bias, not necessarily being a kind of binary, one-dimensional thing. So in 1952, um, ahead of their time, really, the Boston Symphony uh, was looking to um, diversify its male-dominated orchestra. 
So it conducted an experiment uh, with a series of blind auditions. So for the auditions, the musicians would be playing behind a screen because they wanted to remove all chance of bias and allow for a merit-based selection process. Hopefully with that selection process increasing the number of women in the orchestra. But when they actually looked, you know, to their surprise, the initial audition results still skewed to men. Uh, and then they asked the musicians uh, to take their shoes off because they thought, oh, I wonder whether that's kind of having an impact. Because what they saw was that the sound of women's heels as they entered the audition unknowingly influenced their adjudicators. So unknowingly, that, that unconscious bias kicked in. And then when they got musicians to remove their shoes, almost 50% of the females made it past the first audition. So when we think about unconscious bias, it's not just one thing. It's a, it's that kind of, you know, what do we see? What do we feel? What do we touch? What do we uh, hear? All of those senses play a part in that decision-making. So we have to look at it in, uh, in, through a less simplistic lens and see the complexity. Uh, so sometimes it can be viewed as this kind of superficial um, issue. So overcoming unconscious bias isn't as easy as you think. And there are lots of different biases. So I'm going to talk you through very quickly um, kind of eight key biases that uh, hopefully you know people will be familiar with, but um, try and provide a kind of recruitment context to it as well. The first is called effect heuristics, which are back to this idea of shortcuts, the mental shortcuts we uh, take to make decisions based on our emotional or our mental state. So rather than taking all of the facts into account in the recruitment process, this could play out with the recruiter or the hiring manager discarding a candidate because of personal feelings that have got absolutely nothing to do with uh, the role. So for example, if you used to have a friend called Pete who you fell out with, uh, you might still hold a kind of negative bias towards a candidate uh, called Pete, and therefore you kind of deselect them from the recruitment process. So a kind of really simple example of where uh, we make an association to something and we then draw a conclusion, that shortcut kicks in. The next is uh, confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is what uh, causes us to seek out information that confirms something that we already believe. So it's about reinforcing a, a view that we already have. And we hear about this type of bias most in relation to politics. Uh, people are more likely to seek out positive news about the candidate they support, uh, reinforcing their belief that they're supporting the right person. But it can also play out in the hiring process when recruiters and hiring managers can make a snap decision about a candidate based on perceived truths. They then ask questions which justify uh, these biases rather than evaluate each candidate on the same criteria. So it almost becomes a reinforcement and you start to look for the belief that you've got. The next one, the third one is anchor or sometimes known as expectation bias. And an anchor or expectation bias happens when we allow ourselves to anchor onto one piece of information to make a decision. And this can happen in the hiring process when a hiring manager believes that the new hire needs to be a carbon copy of the person who used to have that role. So you start to look out for uh, in candidates, you're looking for that aspect of the candidate uh, uh, against a previous employee. So, you know, it might be the person that used to do the role before had worked for a particular organization. So, you know, you're hoping to attract that type of person or you might someone who's done that role for a particular period of time. So you anchor to a piece of information and that you start to strive to look for that to confirm um, that being the kind of uh, impact. 
the next are kind of grouped together, the next two. So you've got the halo effect and the horn effect. The halo effect, and this is a bias that causes us to have a general positive impression of someone uh, to influence how we evaluate their specific attributes. So typically it's about, um, you know, when we're impressed by one fact about a person. So it could be that they went to a prestigious university um, and therefore we kind of form a view based on that basis. And the halo effect often kicks in when we wish we were like another person. So this plays out in the hiring process when the hiring manager or the recruiter focuses heavily on that one positive aspect of a candidate's background and lets that guide them and guide their opinion moving forward. The opposite of that is the horn effect. And this happens when we let one perceived negative aspect of a person influence the way we think about them. For instance, something as simple as not liking a candidate's outfit or the way that they speak can cloud a recruiter or hiring manager's judgment during the recruitment process and be difficult to get past. And sometimes you see that again with based on where someone's worked before. So you form a view and you see that as being a, a negative in the process. The next one then is affinity bias. And affinity bias causes us to connect with people who are similar to us. So not necessarily where you've got um, the halo effect, which is where uh, you see um, that kind of prestige of say university. The similarity is around um, uh, not necessarily about looking up to them. It's more about that affinity because you feel connected to them or part of the same community and you surround yourselves with, with people like that. So people you've got a rapport with. So people like me. So in the hiring process, this can lead to teams with very little cognitive diversity as recruiters and hiring managers are kind of recruited in their own um, shadow or in their own mold. And then you've got conformity bias uh, as the next one, which in a sense uh, is around peer pressure. So that's around when it comes to uh, the, um, you know, if you're making a decision and you've got other people in the room, uh, rather than making that independent choice based on our own interpretation, it's when we go with the kind of majority. And this can kick in when uh, we're in that kind of panel. So if you're on a panel and you think one candidate is really great, but the rest of the group prefer someone else, you can get kind of swept along with, with the majority in that case. And that's a, a really big thing to watch out for. And then the final one is con uh, the contrast effect or judgment bias. And this happens when we compare two similar things to each other rather than assessing them independently. So during the recruitment process, this can happen when a recruiter or a hiring manager compares one resume with uh, or CV to another um, that they viewed before. So we start to shift the goalposts. So we start to look at that CV and judging each candidate in isolation, we start to compare as we go along that CV to the uh, last candidate. And we make the judgment based on the last person we saw rather than doing that kind of evaluation at the end. So back to that point at the beginning around it being multidimensional, all of these factors can be in play as part of one recruitment process. It, it's not just gonna be com uh, conformity bias. It's not just gonna be the halo effect. All of them can exist within one recruiting process. Thank you for such an in-depth answer there. With so many different types of bias, what are some strategies that talent leaders can use to reduce unconscious bias in the recruitment process? Yeah, and I think that, you know, this, this there is so much to go after, but I think what I want to call out is probably, um, you know, five key things that organizations can uh, really focus on and, and really zoom in on. 
And uh, firstly, that understanding the different um, types of unconscious bias is just the first step on that that journey uh, to reducing its influence. And whilst training can raise awareness, it rarely changes behaviour. So to make a real change, you know, employers should implement a robust diversity and inclusion programme that touches every aspect of the hiring process. So let's just take those kind of uh, five things in turn. So firstly, clearly outline the role. So really taking the time to understand what the role requires is essential for kind of weeding out bias in the recruitment process. Specifically, by identifying eight to 10 objective criteria that are predictive of role success, you can really start to decrease the likelihood that decisions are made using unconscious bias. It's important to evaluate what it takes to be successful in the role And is there anything that could stop a candidate from applying? Does the role need to be performed in person? Can it be done remotely? Are there criteria you're using which are, you know, are they actually accurate predictors of success? Or are you relying on the kind of vague concept of cultural fit that breeds affinity bias? Uh, As an example, uh, some of the big four accountancy firms have reduced their reliance on academic achievement for their early careers and campus hiring programs because they know uh, and can demonstrate it's not an accurate predictor of future success in the role. Instead, they're now focusing more on things like potential and using other measures that have been tracked to show their impact on performance. So that kind of being clear about what um, success looks like in the role is is a really important starting point because that gives you that objective criteria then to make your decisions. The second is around building inclusive job descriptions. So once you've uh, outlined that role internally, focusing on the external job description and the job ads, anything that can discourage a strong candidate from applying, in particular, removing gendered language from the job description, you know, checking for pronouns we're using, you know, start to avoid using terms like expert, superior or rock star that can turn off female candidates. And there are a whole range of uh, online tools out there that can help highlight and remove biased language. So that's a really quick win is just to start to look through. And if you look at your job ads, if you look at your job descriptions, uh, really look at the language and see, is this inclusive language which is going to be accessible for everyone? Is there language in there which, um, you know, potentially could uh, stop some uh, groups from, from applying for roles? And then we need to make sure that those requirements that you list out for the role only cover what's absolutely necessary because we know the research shows that women are less likely than men to apply for a role if they don't feel that they meet all of the requirements. Whereas in reverse, uh, men are more likely to apply if they only meet one portion of them. So you almost end up with this imbalance from the get-go because uh, some of that criteria is is overstated as unnecessary because it's more than what's required to be successful in the role. And when thinking about the job description, uh, get people to review it, get people from different backgrounds, from different groups to review it and get their feedback and take it into account. You know, don't let a hiring manager uh, from one particular group uh, write that uh, that JD or that job ad in isolation. Make sure that you use things like your employee resource groups, make sure you use um, diverse people within your organization and, and really take that feedback on board. The third is around the screening process and really making sure that, um, you know, in your selection process that you've got the right overall approach. So, you know, those organizations that really rely heavily on resumes and CVs, um, you know, they're fraught with bias. The the research shows that CVs uh, are not great, 
uh, around bias, but they're also not great predictors of success. So in terms of screening people out, you know, uh, is there an opportunity to look at um, other um, elements or the uh, assessments from a kind of pre and mid SIF stage uh, where you could start to look at that other information? And part of the reason for that is that there are many factors on a CV that can trigger unconscious bias, whether it's the person's name um, from a gender or ethnicity perspective, the school that they went to. Um, so that could be around geography or their economic class and the year they graduated. So uh, linking to age. There was a study done by the National Centre for Social Research of people with white sounding names and nearly twice was likely to get a call back for jobs than people with ethnic sounding names. In their study, job applicants with white sounding names were uh, significantly 74% uh, more likely to be invited to a job interview compared to applicants with an ethnic minority sounding name. So, you know, really looking at that first stage in terms of uh, blind CVs, um, you know, is, a, is an opportunity to reduce bias. And then as you move through the assessment process, the next one, the fourth area to really think about is rethinking your interviews. And recruiters and hiring managers have relied on interviews uh, since recruiting became a thing. But it can be rife with unconscious bias because interviews actually have a very low predictive power. Actually, most of the time, um, the data shows, and I think there's some work done by uh, a university in the US, I think University of California, which was looking at um, the predictive power and, and essentially only one in two times um, does it predict performance? So essentially, it's like uh, heads or tails uh, on a coin. You know, 50% of the time you're going to get it right, 50% of the time you get it wrong. So it's about making sure that when you think about the interview, um, thinking about how it's constructed. So uh, are they, is it one-on-one -on -one or small groups where bias can flourish? Um, could you move to mixed panels where, with more diverse interviewers with that objective criteria we've talked about to assess each candidate? That can really help to lower the risk compared to that kind of more traditional one-to-one -one interview setting. And also you've got the opportunity to look at um, standardizing the interview and the criteria that's being used and are there other elements you could put alongside it? So are there... Um, uh, job simulations that you could use? Are there role plays, group exercises that could be used as part of the assessment experience? So you're not making the decision just solely on the interview, you're using other assessment criteria to support with it as well. Um, and then finally, just on the rethinking your interview, which I guess is a, the kind of one of the phenomena that rolls off the back of the uh, pandemic. And as we've moved to kind of virtual um conferencing and video inter uh, video interviews more and more and um, think about the risk of bias there because in this new world of virtual interviews where we can see inside a person's home for the first time you know that person's not coming into the office uh, people can make unfair assumptions so you know they can look into the background and see their home setting so there might be you know uh, an untidy room there could be clothes uh, in the background so thinking about how you mitigate for that in terms of the guidance you give to candidates about um you know using their uh, a filter so that you, you don't see the background or making sure that you're training hiring managers to you know not take that into consideration when they're when they're making a decision and then the final last one the fifth one is about formalizing the decision process 
Uh, and this is about the final piece of the recruitment process in terms of making that hiring decision. And it's not just about getting together at the end of the interview and saying, you know what, I really like John, he was great, or this was just something I really liked about Catherine. That's where conformity bias absolutely kicks in um, and plays a really strong role in, in those types of discussions. So instead, have the panel step away individually, get them to reflect on each candidate, score them based on the objective criteria, and then come back together as a group and have that group discussion around what you've learned about the candidates during the recruitment process to, to kind of make that decision. So they would be my kind of fast five um, things that organizations can do to start to mitigate some of the impact of unconscious bias. I noticed in your answer that you didn't focus on those sort of company-wide trainings that we've seen become popular in recent years. Would you say that those are effective? And is there anything that leaders can do to make them more effective? Yeah, it's a really it's a great question. So I think uh, unconscious bias training has been a bit of a phenomenon that organizations have uh, implemented um, over the last couple of years as almost seen as being the silver bullet to addressing the the diversity challenge or certainly um, you know going a long way towards it but there's been a whole host of studies now that have looked at unconscious bias training um, and actually it's not necessarily um, shifting the needle on the on the issue and uh, I think there's probably a number of reasons for that and it goes back to one of the things I said earlier in terms of um, you know, when we look about um, changing behavior, behavior only changes in the long term. So we know when you look at workplace training for uh, lots of different things, whether it's negotiation skills or whether it's persuasion skills or whatever it might be, that, you know, you've got to be able to take it back into the workplace and apply it for that start to, um, to have an impact. And only a small percentage of what we receive in training manages to make it through into our kind of everyday. And that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, the, uh, the studies that have been done are showing that, you know, it, on its own, uh, its impact um, has not been pronounced. Uh, because you've got to have the systems and the structures and the processes in place for uh, that learning and that education to be manifest. So, you know, if you take someone out of unconscious bias training, but you've still got a wrap up at the end of the um, of the interview where you just make a, uh, you know that group decision, you, the quick wiring in your brain is still going to kick in, and you're still then going to have conformity bias. The structure and the process change of getting people to go away and do their own individual observation and come back, uh, layered in them with the training on top of it to be more aware of those issues and to make sure that those uh, processes and structures are are working um, is where you start to see the impact. So I think that's why unconscious bias uh, training can't be a silver bullet because it is only but a very small part again, back to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, it's such a complex, multi-dimensional piece that, um, you know, one thing on its own is, is not going to solve the problem. So when you implement some of the strategies that we've talked about today, how can talent leaders determine whether or not those strategies are effective? Yeah, great question. And I think this is a really uh, important thing for um talent and for uh, HR in terms of telling the data story and the data to look at it and really inspect that data. So looking at it at a macro level, but also really drilling into the detail because 
um, you know, looking at it holistically won't necessarily enable you to drill down to where you might be seeing the pain points. And it's an external picture and it's an internal picture. So from an external perspective, looking at your uh, recruitment process and your funnel from top to bottom. So thinking around, you know, what have we got in terms of application numbers? Are we seeing diversity across the board? And looking at that within each of the different categories, whether it's gender, whether it's age, whether it's uh, sexual orientation, whether it's around ethnicity. And then seeing what happens as you move through each of those steps in the process. Um, for different categories. So whether that's around volume roles, whether that's in specialist roles, whether that's into exec hiring, whether that's into into campus and seeing the difference across the job families that exist as well. So almost cutting the data, slicing the data so you can see it um, almost at at that micro level because that's where you'll be able to kind of pinpoint where your opportunities are. And that gives you the baseline to work with as well. Internally, though, it's also about looking at that kind of broader set of data points in terms of how does that feed in in terms of performance? So what's the correlation between our diversity data and performance? Do we see that we're um, seeing an uplift because that will help us uh, in terms of the business case and and proving why this is such a critical uh, piece for the organization? Secondly, how that feeds in, again, as as you move through the organization, what you typically find is that there's less external hiring, uh, the more uh, senior the roles are within the organization. So therefore, there needs to be much more of a focus around internal mobility. So are we seeing the uptake around those opportunities from the internal workforce? Because if we're not, is that a bigger cultural issue within the organization broader than talent acquisition? Uh, are we seeing that um, you know those candidates are when uh, when they're having applied are getting through to the shortlist and are getting pr- uh, promoted into those roles as well? So, you know, is there a is there a piece in there around attainment? Is there a piece in around there in terms of in terms of access? And I think having that kind of benchmark over time, you can start to track that progress. The one thing I would say is bit like the silver bullet in terms of um, unconscious bias training is that shifting the dial is going to happen slowly but surely it's not something which is going to happen overnight so it's about setting out a really clear strategy uh, tracking and monitoring over time but expecting to see that that momentum is is only going to uh, incrementally grow it's not something where the dial is going to go from one to a hundred overnight and therefore kind of sticking to the strategy, but also having the agility to build in additional things. What you don't want to do is flip-flop from one initiative to another because you won't be able to see the true impact of some of the things that you're doing. So I think you've got to see it as being building blocks um, rather than just independent pieces of of a jigsaw. Well, thank you. That is most of the questions I had today, but are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I guess my kind of final thought would be, um, you know, unconscious bias is so deeply embedded into all of us. Um, You know, it takes the effort of everyone to reduce it. And back to this point about, you know, it is a long term commitment and not something that happens in three to six months. So it does require that back in from the organization all the way up to the leadership team. It requires a change in behavior for sure from hiring managers to really engage with that process. And it really requires the talent acquisition team to put in place those structures, those processes um, to make sure that we kind of move away from making those those gut decisions to making more objective, measurable decisions. 
And it's about having that kind of clear picture. So, you know, where is it that, that we want to be as an organization? How are we going to kind of track that um, and measure that success? And then celebrate it because, you know, the whole point for doing this back to the, you know, this conversation is happening in cafes and coffee shops and um, sports parks across the, the world right now. And, uh, you know, organizations now realize that this is kind of critical to business success. Uh, it needs organizations to continue communicating the, the benefit of having, uh, a, you know, diverse and inclusive workforce. Well, that is the perfect place for us to wrap up. Simon, thanks for joining me today. It's great to see you again, Nicole. Hopefully see you again soon. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions that we didn't cover today, you can send them our way. You can email us at marketing at peoplescout.com, or you can find us on social media. Just search People Scout on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. But to make sure you don't miss an episode, visit our website or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Talking Talent is a People Scout production, music by sound design through Shutterstock.